Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday morning, more or less, and... uh, I got a lot of feedback last week, a lot of reactions to Steinzos, and that stimulated me to uh, do a little bit, something of a follow-up, just running through my mind, about translations, especially the Talmud in general. And I figured, that's what I'll do this morning, I'm not going to go and do somebody, I'll make it like part two of last time, something like that. Uh, Again, this podcast, like the last one I did, is being sponsored by the Raiden family, Dev, Dina, in honor of the Mirza the forthcoming wedding. We're all looking forward to it. And Cedarus, this Tuesday, was Natanel and Ruthie. And uh hope the state of New York lets me in. And it's a big simcha. In other words, I'm going to be a Mirza Hashem. I'll be um, a Sarah Kedushan at a wedding of a son of a student of mine. That's very nice. Uh, and we wish everybody a, a lot of uh, simcha and mazel. A lot of simcha and mazel. Seventeen they work to work for it. And this is the payers. Now, as I said before, I mentioned science also last week because since he died, so it jumped at me. And I spoke in general terms, of course. That's a podcast after all. But it's located. It's just interesting to me. It's located within a wider. Uh, framework, which is just interesting of the history of translation, especially translation of Gemara, which is something I've done in my lifetime. It's one of the things I've done. We used to work for the art school. So, uh, and a little bit more. And uh, if I have a certain perspective on uh, and I'll just share my thoughts. Uh, if you go back to translations, I mean, if you want to get really, really technical, they say, don't they, that you know, in the Chumash it says they put up Shiva and Lashonim. You know, Moshe's told to put up a place with the whole Torah on it in 70 languages. Nobody knows what that means. You know, the whole Torah in 70 languages. But the the notion that, um, you know, in Dvarim, uh, the notion that the Torah should be presented outside of the original Hebrew is an old one. Whatever it exactly means. But Lemaisa... If you get historical, the first translation we really know about is the Septuagint back at the time, beginning of the Second Temple, roughly speaking, in time of Ptolemy, Ptolemy II. So, you know, not at the beginning of the Second Temple, in the middle of the Second Temple period, the translation into Greek. That's the Torah Shabbat of course. Now, as soon as the Bible is translated into Greek, immediately it resented pluses and minuses, which is why, as I mentioned last time very briefly, that you had... Different reactions to the translation, plus and minus, uh, pro and con. The uh, pluses of the Septuagint, which led to many Jews, I repeat, many Jews, not Chazal, but many Jews, um, being happy about it, is it made the Chumash available to them. From then till today, if you have the average person, 
without an education, and you give them a chumash, and kabbal chumber the rest, and you don't have a translation, they don't know what they're reading. <laughs> Simple as that. And uh, now they did. So the stories of the Bible became open and available to many Jews and by a shiny period. In other words, don't think, you know, since it's thousands of years ago, every Jew was a villain gone. No, there no Hebrew. Those that did, did, but those that did, did not. The minuses, of course, which I think the re- listeners here know, they made a fast day, you know, in the Sarbatavis time and all that. The minuses were, uh, number one, the anti-Semitism that was caused, because with the um, publication of the Septuagint, uh, began modern anti-Semitism. I actually have a, a video of that online somewhere. Did many years ago, and it showed downtown in Baltimore, uh, the two versions of Passover. Because without going into it, if you're Egyptian, you're not going to like the story <laughs> you find in the Old Testament. You'll produce a counter-narrative. And secondly, more interestingly, uh, uh, not more interesting, more complexly, uh, this compelled Jews, even if they're understanding the Bible, to understand it Understanding the Torah through Greek categories of thought. Language is funny that way. Most of us don't think of that. Ferdinand Sasser famously said that all of mankind is trapped in the prison house of language. Think of an ignorant peasant somewhere who's in a pitiful shape because he doesn't even know what he would like to say, just doesn't have the words. The person who has a large vocabulary is articulate actually lives in a wider area mentally. The person with a very small vocabulary and and certainly very small uh, um, storehouse of info, his mom's living in confined quarters. You know what I mean? Like an Eskimo can't imagine what it's like in the rest of the world. That sort of thing, or at least traditionally. And so if you're reading the Bible through the Greek translation, you have to use the Greek way of thinking, the Greek language. Language is a basic feature of every culture. And it's molded by and it molds that culture. And so you're stuck within the prison house of that particular culture. And so it's not authentic, is what I'm trying to say. Not authentic. That's the real, real, real genuine reason that Chazal were opposed to it. Also, the anti-Semitism is generated, but because you cannot be true. Um, now they always say uh, that... Well, let me put it this way. In the Bayashini period, it's obvious that there were two sets of Jews, the ones who lived in Israel and the ones who lived outside. And the ones outside eventually became the majority, what they call the diaspora. These are Jews living outside of Eretz Yisrael, in which, well, Bayashani, very large communities. And these Jews had to uh, undertake to practice Judaism as best they could. And so, one of the things they did, they had no, no Hebrew, but they want to be from, according to the way they understood the term from, once upon a time. Now, don't look too closely. You know, the Gemara says they don't, they're not Bucky Lishma, this and that and the other one. But whatever. There, there was a lot of Jews living in a lot of different places. Now, the existential sociological problem at that time was, whether you like it or not, most Jews in the world spoke and thought in either Greek or Aramaic, not in Hebrew. They didn't know Hebrew. You, you can uh, decry it, you can applaud it, but that, that's the way it was. And uh, therefore, they could only relate to the Torah, through the medium of a Greek and Aramaic, which means the whole cultural world of the Greek thoughts and the Aramaic thoughts. This is what you call Gaulus. Now I'm getting deep here. This is a Gaulus HaTorah. 
You understand? Goals are Torah. You can't understand the Torah from the original and thinking within the context of the original because you're not trained that way. Instead, you have to think of it from outside categories. And it's very famous. They always say every translate, translator and every translation is a zona. <laughs> They're a harlot, unfaithful. It's it's kind of true. I've done my share of translating, and maybe some of you have. You simply have no choice if you're trying to convey what's really going on, excuse me, in the text. By not Lafia Mil, but Lafia Indian, you have to explain it using idioms in different terms. And you'll never exactly get the original. You can only try to convey the best you can do. So you know what they say, the perfect is the enemy to good, so you do the best you can. But understand, in the process of translation, there inevitably, sort of existentially, comes a certain cheating, a certain unfaithfulness. That's how it goes. Now, that's what the Torah Shabbat The way the Torah Shabbat evolved, as we know, in other words, what we call the Gemara, broadly speaking, the Talmud, uh, consisting of basically non-systematic direct quotes of rabbis. You hope they're direct quotes of rabbis. Um, this kind of helped the, uh, it, it kept the Torah Shabbat from becoming a book in Aramaic. Instead, the Talmud became what I would call a text sui generis. You know, what do you call the Gemara? People have been knocking their heads for years. It's not a book. It's not a beginning, a middle, and end. Gemara is discursive. The Gemara, you know, this. it's conversations and the sides and this and that and the other. It's hard to make the cases written systematically. You could. There are those who do. I understand. But for most of us dummies, you know, the Gemara isn't written in a un- very unsystematic way. Okay? And so it didn't become a book. And because it didn't become a book, you can't exactly translate it, can you? It became a text. Now, for that reason, uh, I think, there weren't any translations of Torah Shabbat in the period of the Gaonim in the Middle Ages. Right? I mean, uh, not really. Rather, instead... The way the Jews went at it was, listen closely, instead of translation, you had commentary and interpretation. That's different. The reason I say that is because commentary and interpretation, you hold on to the original. You get it? Like Rashi does to the Gemara. You hold on to the original. So at least you have the organic connection with the original text. Now, it's not totally unmediated because it's mediated by the commentary, by the commentator. But on the other hand, the commentator does not stand in the way between you and the original. So if I read a translation, the trans- and I don't read the original, which is usually what most people do, let me give you an example. Have you ever read a novel that was translated from another language? You know, I don't know, War and Peace, something like that, right? So you're not reading the original, you're reading the translation. Because you're going to read Russian, or a Russian speaker, or a French novel, or something like that. So you're reading something entirely mediated. Mashan Kane, if you have a original with the commentary as developed in Jewish culture, Torah culture, then it is mediated, but you also have access in an unmediated fashion to the original. That's like that's the way that's who we are. That's how we developed. Okay? And uh, uh, the idea therefore just happened organically that learning Gemara requires direct engagement with the original text. This simply became hardwired into Jewish cultural thought, and around the world, whoever was in learning did it that way. I told you before, the history of translation evolved along different lines. There are translation 
replaces the original. It, it, it kills it. This is the story that happened, for example, to the Christians, where they translated the Bible into the Vulgate, into the Latin, and they lost all contact with the Hebrew. And uh, in general, all the Christian and Western European books uh, of this sort involve translations in which you lost the original. Now, some scholar could go at it, the original Greek and the original Hebrew, you know, the Old Testament, New Testament, but they 99% did. You just went with the translation. And by the way, same thing in Islam. When they um, accessed, they copied the philosophical classics of the Middle Ages to use language you'll understand. You know the Rama was into Aristotle and he did it from the Arabic background. So in other words, the Arab intellectuals are into Aristotle and many others. Well, they didn't read Aristotle in the original. As far as I'm aware, the Rama couldn't read Greek. Uh, it's very unusual to do that. They read translations, you know, in Arabic. So in other words, the translation replaced uh, the original. Okay? But the Torah, the B'nai Torah world did not develop that way. That's my point. Now, on the other hand, now there were reasons not, not to translate it. The famous incident of Nicholas Donan in the 1200s, he's the guy that, ex-Yeshiva guy, became a, a guy and then tattletale to the Catholic Church that the Gemara, the Talmud, has a lot of anti-Christian statements in it against Yashka and all kind of other things like that. Uh, let's put it that way. That caused a lot of trouble, caused all the Gemara to be burned, as I think everybody kind of knows. And uh, that really constituted a powerful incentive not to translate a doggone thing, right? Uh, because that initiated the era of censorship, which just causes trouble in the fact that you and I can't get at an unmediated and uncensored text. You can, but it's not easy. Matter of fact, speaking of Steinzels, one of the pluses of the Steinzels Gemara is he chose to share an unmediated, uh, an uncensored text. Let me put it this way. You can't learn Avodazar. This is my opinion. All you ever get is my opinion. You can't learn Gemara Avodazar uh, successfully without the Steinzels. What I mean by that is he has the uncensored. There's a ton of stuff in Gemara Avodazar and Rashi and Tosas about uh, Yeshu, Notesream, things like that. And the first day I remember Sunday being, you know, uh, the Yom Day Hen and things like that. It's all over the place. I mean, I, I was actually surprised. I think I have a copy of my Steins of Odazar, which I highlighted. It's full of highlights all over the place. Every time in Rashi and Tosos, they talk about Yeshu in the notes room and this and the other. And, uh, you know, obviously, it's not a regular Gemara because most of the Gemaras ended up being published, as I think we all know, in Central and Eastern Europe. And by the time the process, uh, you know, exhausted itself, they were all subject to censorship, and even self-censorship, right? Even self-censorship. Who needs trouble? You understand? Who needs trouble? And I would say, by the way, in general, what Zara is particularly the case, but, uh, with Stein's house, but all through Shas, he does, you know, bring down all the the original references to Yeshu and all these other things like that. I made the Gemara in um, the Kamsa by Kamsa stuff, you know, with the, with the Raising up the spirits and uh, I don't know, you know, Megillah and Yaakov Ishmino. You know, it's all, all over here and there. You find these Christian things. Now, I don't say it's it's it's, it's of, uh, you know, understanding most of the things in Gemara. But if you want to know what the original was like, uh, you have to look there. The new Oswald Hutters. I'm not into the new Gemaras. I don't know. Maybe they have the Chesronis Hashas now. You know, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure they do, but it's not the same thing. Uh, now, by the way, 
I'm not saying Steinfeld did the right thing. I think he lived in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s when he read the Gemara. That was a time <laughs> that we look back at a halcyon days when it looked like anti-Semitism was on the way out. It's not coming back. And Mashiach came nowadays. The Nazis are back. The anti-Semites are back. And the internet is back. And uh, I remember I have in my office somewhere. Maybe my wife moved it. When I was doing for the art scroll years ago, back in the 90s, uh, by Goldworm sent us a thing. I remember I did once uh, something about Ram Gamliel and the Minim, but this is when I did uh, Sanhedrin. And within the context, me being historical, so I said, you know, the Minim here mean the original Christians. Because in that particular place, you know, when you run across these words, there's a lot of censorship, you know, Min, Goy, Akum, this, and that, you know, it depends what the original are. Then the word Min sometimes means this, sometimes means that. It's just, that's the way it goes, you know? Uh, you can't necessarily tell what a min is. But sometimes they're really Christians. I mean, not, not rarely. <laughs> and I want to be fancy schmitzy, so I wrote these early Christians, uh, you know, in time around Gamino, et cetera, et cetera. And I got back a whole letter from Rabbi Goldworm saying, don't write that. Um, it might be used in some future Ramban, Pablo, Christianic debate, you know, the, against the, the Jews and so forth. And I followed what he said. I said, okay, no problem. Yeah, you know, I eliminated. You can always say heretics. You know what I mean? Can't go wrong. You can always say minimum are heretics. Then it's no problem. And from the point of view of Chazal, the original Christians were a group of Jewish heretics. You know, but uh, by the way, I saw later on elsewhere, uh, not me, but others in, elsewhere in Arturo Gamor did say Christians. Whatever the case is, he was sensitive to that, and time unfortunately has proved him right, because. Uh, Nowadays, anti-Semitism is, 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 is more powerful. And I mean intellectually, because of the Arabs, because of the Russians, because of the, the Nazis, and so forth. And uh, I have noticed that they do quote uh, extensively from uh, the Gemara and elsewhere any passage they can use against us, particularly an anti-Christian passage. And there are such passages in the Talmud, are there not? Uh, I had the experience, I'm not the only one, Long ago, first time I ever Googled myself. Uh, uh, who, 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 who was the first one? The Nazis, the Stormont or something like that. Why? Because they were quoting from Gemara, uh, Perkelic and Sanhedrin. That's the Nazi sites. Pieces that they can use for their purposes. And since I translated, so, you know, that's where I come up on the Nazi website. I'm just trying to say we live in such a time. Translation... It's, first of all, like a harlot. Translation is also a danger. You understand? It's not Pushin. The reason that Gedoli strolled down the ages were hesitant about translation are manifold. One of them is what I'm talking about now. This anti-Semitism business. Uh, and indeed, if you know your Middle Ages, some of the most interesting translations, pieces, were done by anti-Semitic Catholic priests. Uh, I'm sure I mentioned this. I think I did the on here once. Uh, in his time, in the 13th century, there was a very vigorous intellectual movement among the Catholic Church uh, to conquer the world theologically through argument. That's the origins of the Ramban's debates. And anyway, there's a guy, uh, Raymond Martini, Ramon Martin, who was a Catholic priest, a viciously anti-Jewish. And um, he wrote a book called Pugia Fidei, 
the dagger of faith, in which he collected. He must have learned Hebrew, or something where he had a mishumah at his uh, at his fingertips, or maybe he himself was a mishumah. You know, you never know with these guys. And uh, when I say a mishumah, no, it's actually a shiva guy. There were such people in the Middle Ages. They just were get over it. And he collected all kind of passages throughout the Gemara. He really did, especially the Agatha. That's what mostly he's interested in. But not only, also places here and there from the Gemara, which he can use for his anti-Jewish purposes. The uh, Pugia for day. And he translated into Latin. So what you get is the Latin translation. Now, what's interesting is, I'm sure I must have mentioned this, that in the 20th century, uh, Saul Lieberman, the famous uh, scholar at the Jewish Theological Seminary, uh, Saul Lieberman, the, 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 the big Talmud Chacham, so, the conservative, you know. So, uh, he wrote a book, Shkiin, which means what's sunk in the bottom. And he said, listen, the heck with Pugia for day, but meanwhile, you have somebody translating uh, Chazals, mostly Agatha, mostly, in the 13th century. That's a long time ago. So, if you read these, and by the way, it's online. You can find the Pugia for day online. It's in Latin, you know. And um, if you read them and then work backwards, you get gearses from the time of the Ramban. That's pretty good. You get what I'm saying? He used it in a positive way. We're always trying to find what's the right gearses of the old Gemars. And the Spanish Jews always used to claim they have the best gearses. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. It's a very famous claim from the time of Shun. Now here you have a guy writing in Spain in the 13th century um, using extant Talmudic texts in front of him. Uh, you know, this is like the base of the Aniaco, who came a couple hundred years later, who collected all the Agatas, of course, and there's somewhat a little bit different sometimes than from the Gomorrah, and it's uh, like kind of known, a Dovidua, that the Aniaco is a little bit more uh, accurate than what you find in the printed text of the Talmud. Again, when I did the art school, I used to, you know, if you have a uh, issue in the Gomorrah, if you have to translate all of a sudden, it's a new experience. Then you have to read each word carefully. You see sometimes it doesn't quite make sense. A word seems out of place or not. And then you look at the Yaakov and Anakami fixes it. So I'm just trying to show you here you have translation as a dagger against Judaism. Now, let's skip to the 19th century. I'm not going through all the Christian Hebraic business with you. It's not a lecture. It's just interesting, though. When the time gets to the 19th century, with the rise of modern historicism, the we call the the modern way of, of doing academic history, the better way, especially what we call philology, which we try to understand closely all the little details in ancient world, earlier times. So all of a sudden, translations of classics became the thing to do in Western academia. You understand? They became popular, prestigious. Everybody, every German professor, excuse me, and so forth, uh, put out translations of the Greek classics, the Latin classics, medieval classics, um, non-European classics like Islamic and eventually Oriental, and so on and so forth. It became a, a big deal. Let me put it this way. You can be a good professor, have a nice academic career, if you pull off a couple of good, serious translations. So it's good for the career. Now, um, in that context, what about the Jews? Does anybody want to translate the Talmud? Well, Judaism was considered junk in the 19th century by the regular academics. 
You understand? You're not going to get any prestige. The the real professors who were 99.9% Goyim wouldn't even look at the Talmud. You know, it's a piece of junk. That's the way they thought. The Jewish scholars said, no. You know, the Jewish preacher, he said, no, it's an old text. It's got good stuff. But I'll just take it from me. The non-Jews, with rare exception, it was a guy, Delich or whatever, it was one or two. Um, they weren't Gariset Bechal. And um, therefore, if their translations were ever put out, and they started to be, their translations started to be published by scholars in Germany, Central Europe, places like that, you know, with PhDs or semi-PhDs, shall we say. Uh, but it didn't get much traction, you understand? Because they weren't Jewish. But I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It'll be too long. Let me concentrate just on English translations. Because I locate Steinzels in the art school in the world that you and I live in, which is English translations. The problem, of course, is who's going to read these things in the 19th century. Then everybody's going off the derrick. The masses were Jewishly illiterate in the English-speaking world. The masses that came to England, to America, places like that. You know, maybe had some little knowledge from the background, but usually not. And they had zero shaykhs to learning. They were, this this one everybody went not from, you know, concentrating on making a living. 1800s, early 1900s. The few um, academic Jewish scholars who emerged in the 19th century, meaning guys with some knowledge of, shall we say, history and things like that, um, they were overwhelmingly, I would call today, like conservative rabbis associated with the theological seminaries, you know, like in Breslau and um, yeah, and in, in London and Paris and uh, New York and uh, Rome and those kind of places. All I can say is general. Th- th- listen, some of them were impressive scholars, but overall boring. Nobody read that stuff. Very few people. Now, on the other hand, if you were <laughs> a student in one of these seminaries, Orthodox conservative reform. Let's say, for example, you were in Germany in the 1800s, especially second half of the 1800s. I spoke about Rav Hildesheimer. By the time you have second half of 1800s in Germany, there are three rabbinical seminaries. One Orthodox, one Conservative, one Reform. The first was Conservative, the second was Reform, the third was Orthodox. There was a Jewish Theological Seminary in Breslau, that was a Conservative one, started by Frankel and Gress. Then there was the Reform one in Berlin, and then there was the Orthodox one from Rav Hildesheimer in Berlin. Now what does that mean? Let's say you're a guy, and you want to become a rabbi. It's 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, and so forth. So, what are you doing? You're going for a smicha. You're doing all that stuff. In addition, you want to get a PhD. Now, when we get your PhD, listen, maybe you were, uh, you're interested in, in mining engineering, but chances not, right? You just want to get the stupid PhD, so help you get a stellar. That's what it boils down to in real life. Okay, so, what are you going to go for? You went to college and you took the closest thing you could find to Jewish studies. That's what people did. In, in, in Budapest, in Berlin, in Paris, that's what they did. So you got to take your cl- classes in, in what they used to call Oriental languages. You know, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, I don't know, this, that, and the other, Ethiopic, all this business. Um, now, same thing in Hopkins, where I teach. And um, then when you go for your dissertation, which hopefully you get your PhD and that'll help you get a Stella. So, um, what are you going to get for 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 the uh, for the dissertation? Uh, you know what I'll do? I'll uh, 
here's one way of doing it. I'll take a piece of some text from the Gemara or elsewhere and translate it. It could be 10 pages. That's good enough for a dissertation in the 19th century. I'm serious. You understand? 15 pages. It could be a Gemara. It could be a Medrash. It could be this. You found a manuscript somewhere. Then you got your doctorate. So my point is like this. There's a ton of these things, almost all in German, of translations of texts. But they're only for the guy to get his PhD and get the heck out of there. You know what I mean? Nothing really came from these things. That's why I'm trying to make a point that there, there are translations, but nobody ever read them. There are a flood of them. Uh, for, for your purposes and mine, the thing that emerges, the text that emerges most interestingly out of this era is Jastrow. Because Jastrow was a uh, German Jew uh, with a PhD. Uh, he didn't go to seminary, he learned with his father, but nevertheless, very academic. And uh, in the second half of his life, he came to uh, Philadelphia. Did I do Jester here? Can't remember anymore. So many names. And uh, he had a reform temple. Let's put it this way. He took over a conservative synagogue and made it reform, hoping that it would become orthodox. I, I know it's crazy, but I'm just telling you that's who he was. He was a weirdo. And he spent his, uh, he didn't have good health, and he spent a lot of his time working on his dictionary, which he pulled off. As you know, you know, he pulled off the Aramaic Dictionary, now, um, which was used by everybody when I was a kid. Now, what's my point? Everybody's going to really, you know, let's put it this way. Who's reading a Jastro? A from guy who had trouble to understand a word in the Gemara. Not an unfrum guy, and certainly not a Hamonam. It's going to be a very tiny little uh, uh, phenomenon. So, although he had to run until Artswell came along, but it's a perfect example that, you know, these translations were really vapid and stuff. If anything, the conservative reform, the reform were nothing, mom was nothing. The conservative were something, some of them anyway, the ones who had some yeshiva background. And if you know the late 19th, early 20th century, mainly... They said, I guess, the, this is what they held. First of all, they themselves were turned off to Yiddishkeit to some degree. That's their biography. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone conservative. Second of all, um, they figured in their world of thinking that, you know, regular Gemara will, will go over like a lead balloon. But stories like Agathas and things like that, that's a different story. That's different. You know? Uh, Medrash. Because it was a great age of folklore, so we have the Jewish Talmudic folklore. And therefore, a lot of books came out, Ginsburg and Bialik and all this, on, on, uh, and some, to some degree, translations of, you know, Midrashic texts. But again, nobody really read it, despite what they say. I don't believe anybody read it. And then a screwball situation happened close to 1900, where this uh, ex-Lubavitch nut came to America and translated the Talmud Bavli. <laughs> okay? His name was Rodkinson. It's not really his name, but, you know, you have these people in the 19th century, a couple of them, that are very interesting figures. They're kind of weirdos. They're born Lubavitch, born Chabad, but they went off to Derek. Um, and then and they had a interesting play out. And uh, this guy came actually from real heavy uh, Yechus. I mean, I think he was the grandson of Strachel or whatever. I remember. Anyway, uh, he called himself Rodkinson. And in the 1890s, he, got, he came to America. He met Isaac Merweis, the head of the reform, 
and then neither of them knew that much. So let's translate the Talmud. It'll be a bestseller because all the Jews will buy a copy, whether you read it or not. You'll have it in the on the shelf. That's a moneymaker. And he public and he wrote out the whole uh, Talmud or a lot of it. I remember it's around, but it was a piece of junk. The guy was uh, not Amaris apparently, or worse, he's fifty percent Amaris. This guy Michael Rodkinson, I don't know why he's gotten a lot of um, academic play recently. He's Professor Mayer. Wrote a whole biography of him. I couldn't believe it. He was like a charlatan and so forth. His brother was Frumkin, you know, the one in Israel. And uh, that family. Uh, and they actually <laughs> very distantly connected with my son-in-law's family back. Um, but the backs come from the Baltai. It's a different story. Anyway, um, and he, under, he said, the heck with it. I'll sit down and do it. And Isaac Mayer Wise, who was the head of reform, came to Hoskomo. <laughs> but it's a joke. The guy, you know, let's put it this way. If you want, you can go online, you can get the uh, famous book review of this, 1896, I believe, from Kaufman Kohler, the number one reform rabbi in America, who trashed it and says a piece of junk, which he was right. And he said, what do you want from a guy who translates B'nai Brock as the sons of Baruch? <laughs> you know? And, uh... No, you gave him Kaufman Kohler, by the way, was a super duper schmooper ultra reform rabbi. He's the one who wrote the Pittsburgh platform, which basically Anilo Mamin Bashum Davar. He's a Tal <laughs> he was a Talmud of Sam Sranville Hirsch who went off the derech. You have all these people in nineteenth century, very interesting, that they came from these uh from situations and when they broke, boy did they break. Boy did they break. Here's a guy who was a Lubavitch. By the way, this ex-Lubavitch guy, I should say. There are a lot of them. You know, Solomon Schechter, by the way, was at that time, is Lubavitch. By that I mean, also, he started, but he went off to Derek. Uh, that's why his name is not Solomon Schechter. It's Schneer Solomon Schechter, you know. This is Lubavitch's name. All I'm saying is, this guy, uh, Rodkinson, I remember, he's famous in the academic world because he started neo-Hasidism. He started this genre of fake Hasidic stories. You know what I'm talking about? Sipurim Hasidim that you hear about all the time in the non-from world like Martin Buber and the others. Uh, he, uh, what do you call it? He, uh, <laughs> how should I put it? Uh, <laughs> he started it, you know, where these stories are touched up, you know, the Baal Shem Tov tales and other tales. They're not the accurate stories. They're predified to make them uh, sound good for a Western audience. Ad kedekach. If you go to a reform or conservative or something, they'll always start with a Hasidic tale, which will be in favor of gay rights or whatever. You know what I mean? They get all twisted. I'm just trying to show you that um, the origins of Talmud translations were pretty lousy. Okay? And obviously it didn't go anywhere. You know? it, it, it didn't take off the ground. I've been offered it many times. Oops. I've been offered, you know, because from old book sales and things like that. I never wanted it. Uh, then there was a guy, a few years later, named Eliezer Goldschmidt, at Lazarus Goldschmidt in Germany. And also, we're uh, not the same way. He was a Litvak. How's it, he was from Lithuania. Mm, he learned as a teenager in Slobodka. But then he left, like at the age of 18 or 19, he went to Germany to become an academic. There were, again, 
This is an era when a fair number of people simply went off the dead. That, that's what they did. But I don't know why. He spent many years in German University. He never got a doctorate. But he became an expert in all these weird languages, and he wrote, he translated books in Ethiopian and things like that. And make a long story short, he published like in 25 volumes the whole Talmud Bible in German. Again, in my youth, I used to see these around, and people are. I used to go to Sheva House, and people say, Oh, you want this? You know, it was an old Yaki or something like that. I say, You want it? We have the whole Talmud here in German, and so on and so forth. Now, again, um, there's a piece of junk. There's a famous book review in German by W.C. Hoffman uh, pointing out all the mistakes they made, and the guy tried to answer W.C. Hoffman. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Who's going to believe? W.C. Hoffman? <laughs> you know? Or this guy, uh, Eliezer Goldschmidt. It's, again, didn't go anywhere. And it's a translation into German, but they're all very superficial. You know, to, to have the translation without the explanation is more or less useless. More, more or less. Okay? And um, you see that the project of translating, especially something like the Gemara, did not have a great play up. And then in the early 20th century, as we know, the 20s and 30s started the Sansino, which is a different thing altogether. The Sansino was a from project. Not yeshivish, but a from project. Um, this all happened with the best of intentions. To me, it's an interesting story. Back in the time of Chief Rabbi Hertz. You know, Joseph Herman Hertz was the Chief Rabbi of England in the British Empire from 1913 to 1946. That's a, he was a character and a half. He was a from guy. He was a from guy. He was the first graduate of Jewish Theological Seminary, but he was a from guy. I wouldn't say the biggest Tamachachim ever walked down the road, but he was a from guy, whatever people. And at that time, this is interesting. Uh, that time, they really believed in England and America, a place like that, you know, if you if you translate the text, then that will really be macabre the people to it. And so you have like the Hertz Chumash. Now people are able to read the Bible. Now to tell you the truth, the Hertz Chumash was kind of successful. I know old people from long ago that, uh, you know, they all had the Hertz Chumash. And, uh, you know, he's got his own idiosyncratic way of uh, giving a commentaries and all the rest of it. You can like it or not like it, but he was a from guy. He tries to spin it in a from way. I would say a very, very modern orthodox um, point of view. But there's nothing wrong with that. And, um, you know, to, 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 to apologetic and so forth. And hurt sitter. So part of that, although he didn't undertake it, he spent his time on the Chumash and the Sitter, simply saying this is what people read in Shul. But that generated, with the Sancino company, to do the Talmud. And they gave it to Israel Epstein, who was a very interesting guy. He was a from guy. And uh, I never knew him, but uh, what I've read, what he's written, he seems to be a wonderful person. He was an English guy who was, um, you know, doing to learn. And he went to Jews College, but he also went to more than that. You know, they were like, she was, and he was very close with Rav Cook when he was in, in London, when Rav Cook was in London. And he undertook, you know, they gave it out to a bunch of rabbis and uh, Epstein would be the uh, editor, but really, Lemaisa, I can tell, Epstein did the whole translation with another guy, Kazdan, and uh, 
the, the Sancino Talmud shows you the, as far as you can go and the limits of what a translation could do. I would call it a from translation. Well, it's not from translation, but it's not unfrom. Let's put it that way. It's not unfrom. And uh, when I was young, you used to see people, especially shul rabbis, using this if they want to give a dafyami or something. Not a dafyami, but whatever they had at that time to understand the, the hard words or whatever. But, um, and, you know, if Israel Epstein went through it, at least the guy who went through it knew how to learn. But it didn't go anywhere. And the reason is because with all these people, in my opinion, that's all you ever get here, what they did not grasp, all these attempts, was the fatal flaw of uh, a translation that was not attached to the original. I don't mean only graphically, although that's important. You should be both on the same page, but organically. Uh, can I explain this? As I said before, you don't want a translation that replaces the original, because it's almost useless in the case of a Gemara. Um, and the Sansino didn't even undertake, not in any systematic way, to, to you know go with Rashi or Tosin or anything like that, you know, the rarest times. And so, what exactly is your goal? You know, to render a a somewhat faithful translation of the Aramaic words, eh, you don't come up with anything. You understand? And uh, you don't have any connection to the original text. So it's not the shot that I'm learning the Gemara, but I have this uh, Sansino next to me to help me understand the Gemara. At least that's something. You understand? If a guy says, notice it could be used that way. I remember from when I was a kid. You know, not always, but sometimes. If I'm learning Gemara, totally. And I have in front of me a regular Gemara, Gemara Shetosis. And there may be some part that I don't quite get. Or I didn't know where is, where is a stop and a start. Let's say I was a, a, a young student, you know, a, a not a good, not an experienced uh, person. And I can use the, the, the sound scene to tell you where it stops and starts. Or you have some strange, you know... Um, uh, word that you don't even understand what Rashi means when he tries to explain it, which could happen. So then you could use it, you understand? But only in those very limited ways. At least in the, the, the case I just described, you have the regular Gemara in front of you, and you're using this as sort of like an extra, what's the right word, aid. But on the other hand, if you don't, if you just have the English Sancino, which is just usually printed in English, it's detached from the original, and, and it, it's like a plant cut from the roots. That's what I, that's what I, as I recall it, which is why I never took off. And, you know, we're already talking about the post-war era. By the time they finished, was the 50s. And it was clear in the post-war era, among the brighter minds out there, that there was, would be a small but growing readership for good translations. And... You know, the, some professors had plans here and there, and some of the conservative movement in America had plans here and there to try to do it. And they started with a little of this, a lot, you know, a few ideas here and there. But Steinzel started in the 60s and killed them all. That's, that, that's its historical significance. All these little projects that were getting off the ground that could have gone somewhere, but would have ended up being failures, uh, Steinzel's killed them. Because... His Gemara, by definition, of course, 
being in Israel and Ivrit, was just that. It was a Gemara. It was not a standalone translation. It's a Gemara with his translation organically and graphically linked to the original text. So you look at the page, you see the regular Gemara, and then you see the translation stuff on the side. Uh, but it's part of, it's meant to be graphically, you read the Gemara and then you use the Shantos on the side. And in addition, it turns out that things that other translators didn't pay attention to, like the Nikudos, the Nikud and the Pisuk, you know, the uh, question marks and commas and colons and all that, which is not what translators are into. They're into tra- translating into English or whatever language. Turns out, and I've been saying this for years, that the Pisuk and the Nikud were major elements in mage- making the original text more available to the reader. You see? Um, this itself is a revolution. As the expression goes, Hanikud and If you see what the Nikudas are, and you see where you're supposed to stop and start, and what's a question, what's not a question, you're halfway there. Any intelligent person can usually figure it out just from that. Without adding anything to the text itself. Without anybody, any commentary on the side. Uh, this, um, let me put it this way, even the firm is the firm, they didn't want to admit it, the graphics are like, it makes a big difference. When you see, uh, you know, this next to this, and the, the the sentence stops and starts here. And Steinsaltz even puts question marks and commas in Rashi and Tosas or whatever. Uh, makes a big difference. You see it? You know? I didn't know I was looking at a question. Now I do. Something like that. Uh, this, I, I, again, I'm just sharing you my understanding. This importance of the graphics, knows how the page looks, was then picked up by the most of the rough cook. And that's what he did to Rishonim. Because that's another piece of this whole revolution. It used to be that, you know, yeah, there's Shidemikobetsas, one of these old, uh, you know, uh, what are you, regular Rishonim with the uh, small print and all the rest of it. That's the old fashioned way of doing it. And again, in my lifetime, I think it was in the 80s, the uh, Moser of Cook found a niche that they could penetrate the Yeshiva market. But years and years ago, you said Moser of Cook eh, is not from, or it's Mizrahi or something like that. Um, and then, they did what the art school did. They made themselves indispensable because they started putting out these Rishonims, the Ritvas, the Rashbas, and so forth, the Rans. That's what you got to use now because they have, first of all, the graphics is good. Second of all, the uh, footnotes is good. And you kind of can't do without them. So that's the best way of uh, penetrating a market. And then, of course, obviously, in that context, the art school came along and took graphics all to a new level. Right? You know, they, they took everything to a new level, uh, which, which, which means they accomplished like a revolution. So a lot of this doesn't have to do only with the translation itself, but it has to do, of course, with the way the translation is uh, linked or not linked uh, with the text itself. And uh, the whole you said of the art scroll, which they noticed went beyond science, as I said before, was to say... We are not publishing a separate English book divorced from the Gemara. But in every page, you're going to have the Gemara opposite the page, as, as we all know. Right? Uh, and therefore, the whole point of the art scroll is to help you do the original, but this is an extra. Now, I know not everybody does that, but I think in my mind, even a person who, can I use the word cheat? 
even a person who reads only the art school part, does do the Gemara part, wants to get to the point where they can do the Gemara part and not refer to the art school or use the art school only as, as an ancillary. You understand? Even the person out there who Lamaisa is doing the Dafyomi and is looking all on the art school page hopes <laughs> to get to the point where you know he can do the Gemara inside, the, the Tosas inside. I'll know we refer a little bit to the art school. That's what I think, you know. Um, now, in that case, if if the person is doing what I just said, then that's what the that's the ideal of the art school to get you to the point where you move from dependence on the translation and explanation to the Gemara itself. Now, maybe I'm being uh, unrealistic, but I think that's that's it, and that's that's how they sold themselves. That's how they, that's why it took off. Uh, so that's why that's where I see you know the Steins also located in the in the broader picture, which to me is an interesting one, of the Gemara and the most uh, inner parts of the rabbinic literature, um, entering the world of English thought. Uh, now the the, the minus is that uh, you know you're you're using English categories of thought, uh, but perfect Zanamigo is like the Septuagint. You know, there's a plus and a minus to it. Is, the the, the art school Gemara is always going to be within, um, you know, the limits of American English, you know, within that world. The Steinzel's Gemara is going to be within the world of uh, Israeli Ivrit. Is Israeli Ivrit identical with Lushan Kodesh? There's a big uh, controversy about that. And anytime you do anything involving translation other than the Mamashi original, you're going to have these, these kind of issues. But what's what's... I would leave with a final thought, sociological one. Um, and I'm talking about the sociological effects, the broad social effects on the Jewish people result of these translations that I'm talking about, uh, which is interesting to me. Uh, there is an academic world out there, and they publish a lot, do specialty studies, but they rate for each other. The books, the books don't uh, sell. they only uh, meant for be read by other specialists. The people now, for example, doing a lot of mechkar and, uh, you know, locate, trying to figure out the provenance of the Babylonian Talmud within the Zoroastrian context. Because the Gemara was put together in Bavel during the time when the Jews were ruled by the Persians, and at that time it was the Zoroastrian culture. And, you know, what parallels do you see between one and the other, and so on and so forth. And they're Articles, books, conferences on this sort of thing. I imagine most of you have no idea what I just said. That's my point. These people write for each other. They have no, uh, what's the right word, uh, splash out there. Um, the falling trees do not make noise. Um, that's what contemporary Jewish academia, I think, is more or less condemned to. They don't have a mass audience. Uh, the theory behind Jewish studies was that this will make Judaism uh, relevant and popular among the non-from. Wherever you go around the world, certainly in America, wherever there's a a Jewish uh, studies program, it was not started by the university itself because they still have an intellectual, a cultural anti-Semitism. They just do, take it from me. But rather, the uh, Jewish communities themselves generated the money. No, it was a rich guy went to Hopkins, a rich guy went to... Rich lady went to Columbia. Rich lady went to university, this and the other. 
and said, listen, I'll give you a million dollars or five million dollars, whatever, to start a, 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 a department of Jewish studies. Now, why did this rich person do that? Because he or she figured, not from, and they figured, this way my kids or people like that who are not from will find Judaism relevant and modern and, you know, they want to, uh, you know, be part of it or present Judaism in an academically respectable fashion. But that didn't work. Um, the uh, Hamun Am out there is not really uh, affected by what the Jewish professors write or something like that. Any more than Americans are by what, you know, some uh, college professor writes, generally speaking, in some uh, obscure area. You know, uh, you know, French history or something like that. Uh, so there are books and they're of, of varying quality, but I don't think anybody reads them, or hardly. Not meant to be read by large uh, people. That's what an academic book is. Now, there used to be, the attempt was to have something called popular Jewish literature, but it's not from, but that died. It's the kind of books that were around when I was a kid. Literally, the companies are gone. The Jewish Publication Society was once a big deal. I knew these old guys, oh, it was in the JPS, this Chashub, and uh, the, they went out of business. Uh, by contrast, uh, the Art Scroll Gemara, in particular if you throw in the Steinzels and the Art Scroll, have sold millions. Uh, that's not an exaggeration. They've sold millions of copies. There are no Jewish books that sell millions of copies. You know, let's say somebody writes a successful novel or a, a popular book. They don't sell a million copies. They sell very few. Uh, Jews don't buy Jewish books, generally speaking, in the non-firm world. No one could have predicted, uh, and they're still shocked, that the that if you go by the numbers, the, the books with the largest numbers of, of sales is the Babylonian Talmud. Give me a break. It's not possible. And yet it is. All which bespeaks the fact that we have what you call a par benedot. We have a gigantic uh, gap among Jews between the two groups. Uh, when you go from and not from, but in other words, I'm talking about it here culturally. The from are very heavily into literacy. Uh, the from buy books. They'll spend money on it. And you go to a from house, if they can afford it, they'll have a lot of books, Jewish books. That's about classic books. The non from don't have any books now. <laughs> you see? Uh, certainly nobody's anything, any connection with the Gemara. It's totally irrelevant to them. Totally irrelevant. It's not part of their lives. They were not interested in it. And so the result is that we have what's called the best of times, the worst of times. They tell two cities. If you come to Baltimore or anywhere, you'll see two sets of Jewish homes, A and B. In one, uh, there's not a single Jewish book, or maybe one. I know so many people like that. They're not from nice people. The Jewish books is not something that interests them. Uh, and maybe there's a, you know, a book about the state of Israel or something like that, you know, the Mossad, whatever. That's it. Then you go to a whole st- different set of Jews. They got hundreds of volumes in the house. Right? Dozens of volumes in the house. And of classics. I mean, books written long ago. It's just very, very interesting. And so the the history and the way translations have played out in which science will play such a seminal role is uh, so remarkable and it, 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 it like bespeaks, as I said before, the tale of two cities or the tale of two jewelries. And uh, the non-firmware, you know, they're, they're very acutely aware of this 
but um, they can't participate. The most you can get is that the modern Orthodox want to, you know, participate now, and with, with the Koran and all the rest of it. Uh, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good question whether these will sell well or go anywhere, in in terms of numbers. So anyway, these are just a few ideas I had that I wanted to share. Uh, since Steinsaw died last week, and we're dealing here where, where translation ultimately has to me, a, a, a large cultural and historical uh, significance. It's not just a, a matter of, a, you know, an intellectual translation, one text to the other, there's lots of that. But among us Jews, something translations of classic texts, especially the Gemara, is a, a historical uh, marker. And as I said, and I ended last time, and some people wrote me back, and we're only beginning, because uh, now comes the age of the uh, internet and uh, the uh, gra- uh, not the, the, the videos you know, where like I said before you're going to have Dick Sosa in the sea with some videos um, that's a, a new Parsha uh, and the Frum world uh, including the Haredi world is part of the internet revolution in other words they're part of the videos and all this kind of stuff It's we're no longer in a situation like when I was a kid where very Frum people had no shots to technology Today, the way things have developed, as you all know, uh, technology is a part and parcel of the firm world. It's, it, it, how it's going to play out, uh, we're going to see. Uh, that's going to have a very heavy impact, uh, I'd say, 10, 20 years from now. And the chinuch and learning will be very different, as, as I see it, uh, 10 years from now, certainly 20 years from now, this went beforehand. Uh, we can only... Uh, just begin to imagine what it's going to be like. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to share those few thoughts and have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.